All right. Lent. I want to look at what the Bible says about Lent. I should probably start with this. Lent is not in the Bible. But before anyone gets up tight, <laughs> and I know some of you might be already, uh, nor is Good Friday, nor is Easter, nor is Christmas, even Sunday. All these things really have arose out of church tradition. We should also know that none of these traditions like Lent or Good Friday or Easter or Christmas are prescribed in the Bible or let alone even practiced by Jesus or any of the New Testament writers. I think that's important for us to know at the outset here. Now that doesn't, I don't think, make any of these things bad. But with any tradition, I think we need to be incredibly careful, especially, I think, when you consider that Lent these days has become a trendy thing for Christians to do. But at Crossroads, and those of you who've been here long enough, we, with all of our hearts, seek to be biblical. I mean, we love our middle name, Crossroads Bible Church. And so we want to be guided by God's word in everything we do and not ever put God's word over human tradition. So in saying that, I want to start then with these two questions as we look at Lent. What is Lent and how did Lent develop? And so really, I need to start with a little bit of a history lesson this morning. And I'm not sure how far to go back, so I'll go all the way back to the beginning of the church, which was when? When did the church begin? It began right after Jesus died, was raised, ascended into heaven, and he looked at his followers and he said, Go you into all the world and make disciples of all peoples. And those disciples in groups were were churches. And that's when the church began. Now, but what you need to know is that for the first 300 years of the church's existence, this time of year, the church probably didn't even know the word Good Friday or Easter. It celebrated Passover. And Passover is biblical. It's the spring feast that God himself designed and put together and instructed his people to celebrate going all the way back to Moses. So for the first 300 years of the church's existence, Jesus' death and resurrection were understood in light of Passover, and more importantly, it was understood to be the fulfillment of Passover. I think there are several reasons why the church celebrated Passover. Uh, First of all, most of the early Christians were Jews. And they didn't see Christianity really as a new religion, but as a fulfillment to all that uh, God was doing in in his holy scriptures. And so when Jesus dies on the feast of Passover, this isn't just some coincidence to them. They see Jesus then as the fulfillment of Passover. And Passover being a feast that God shaped and God instructed and said, I want you to keep this feast forever. That's why they kept Passover. In fact, they also realized that when God instructed uh, all the feasts, 
really hundreds upon hundreds of years before Jesus, um, God called these feasts holy convocations. And this word in Hebrew means rehearsal. And so the way they understood it is that thousands of years before Jesus, God wanted all the feasts to rehearse something yet to come. And so in the case of Passover, it was to rehearse the coming of a greater lamb. It was to rehearse a, a greater exodus yet to come. It was to rehearse the gospel. And this is why over and over again the the New Testament writers refer to Jesus as the Lamb. Because they're understanding Jesus in light of Passover. A Lamb slain who brings about redemption. Even Paul in uh, Romans 3 when he writes this, this great text. For we have all sinned, we all fall short of the glory of God and we're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation or an atoning sacrifice by his blood to be received by faith, which is what we just heard this morning, and it changed a life. And that message through this life is changing other lives. And Paul continues, and he said this was to show that God's righteousness, not our righteousness, but his righteousness, Because of his divine plan, he passed over our sins. And so even Paul himself understands Christ in light of Passover. So for the first 300 years of the church's existence, there was no Good Friday. There was no Easter. And I don't know if that comes as a surprise to you. But the church celebrated Passover. But... In the year 313 A.D., it all changed because that's when the Roman Emperor Constantine became a Christian. And soon thereafter, he issued an edict and made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. And what you needed to know is up until this point, Roman empires made life really difficult for Christians, oftentimes persecuting them and putting them to death. Prior to this edict, 15% of the Roman Empire was Christian. Now overnight, think about it. Everyone's a Christian. And really with this edict, the whole fabric of Christianity changed. The epicenter of the faith moved from Jerusalem to Rome. And instead of the church being this bottom-up, organic, going against the stream kind of movement, just like that, overnight, it becomes this top-down political institution, and it became the popular thing to do. And more and more, Christianity became westernized. It became anti-Semitic. Didn't take long before the whole New Testament was extracted from the scriptures and placed in a western Greco-Roman system of thought. Like you talk about syncretism and erecting a golden calf, that's the kind of stuff that was going on. And then what do you do with all your pagan traditions and your pagan holidays? Well, you replace them with Christian ones. And so this is when Christmas was established. This is when Sunday worship replaced Shabbat. This is when Christians were forbidden from meeting in synagogues. This is when Good Friday and Easter replaced Passover. This is when the roots of our faith were being severed from the text and instead they were starting to be placed in human tradition. 
Now, I look at all this, I, I think, you know, Emperor Constantine, as this newbie Christian, I think he had good intentions in all this. But you think it's an easy thing for people to just give up their past? I mean, there's a reason why there's still Christmas trees and Easter bunnies. You can't give them up. And I want you to know in saying all this right now that I am not one of the letter of the, of the law kind of people because I think God gives us great freedom. And God doesn't look at our form. He looks directly at our hearts. And God can put up with all kinds of things. I, I, I believe that. I have a Christmas tree in my house every Christmas, okay? We celebrate Christmas. We gather here on Sunday. But I do think we need to be careful. And even more importantly, I hope we seek to be biblical. Especially when we're creating holidays that are replacing the very holidays God instructed. And so as a church, we're we're striving to be biblical. We're not going to claim ignorance is bliss. And we're going to understand that God did give his people a calendar. And what he says about his calendar is, my people will keep my days forever and ever. That's what he says. In Luke 2, it says every year Jesus' parents went up to Jerusalem for Passover feast. And when Jesus was 12 years old, they attended the festival as was their custom. What Jesus did, of course Jesus kept Passover. In fact, our translation there says according to the custom, which we infer to be the tradition, but that's not what the Greek word is. The Greek word there is ethos, the ethic, according to the law. Because God says every year in the month of Aviv, which is their word for spring, he says, I want you to remember. I want you to remember how I redeemed you. I want you to... Remember this through a meal that you're going to eat as a family. And as you eat this meal, I want you to know you're rehearsing a greater redemptive event yet to come. So now let's turn in our Bibles to Luke 22, verse 7. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. What's your heading? The Last Supper. It could better be said, the Passover. Then came the day of unleavened bread in which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Well, where do you want us to prepare for it, they asked. And he replied, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them. Of course they did. So they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his disciples reclined at the table, and he said to them, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment 
in the kingdom of God. This is God's word for now. You can be seated. Now, we call this the Lord's Supper, but I want you to know, in Jesus' mind, in the disciples' mind, uh, this is Passover. And the text says that Jesus was eager. He was passionate to celebrate the Passover with his disciples. One last time. Why? Well, think about this. For 1,500 years or so, this has been a dress rehearsal. Now, all of a sudden, it's going to become the real thing. I mean, think about practicing something, not just week after week or month after month or even year after year, but you're just practicing, practicing it without ever being able to play the actual game. Well, now... The rehearsing is over. It's game time. It's time for the real thing, and Jesus is pumped up. And when Jesus says then at the Passover meal, I want you to do this in remembrance of me, and what is he saying? He said, I want you to keep the Passover. But don't keep it as a rehearsal in the way that it was done before. I want you to eat the Passover meal in remembrance of me. He's saying, I am the lamb slain. Redemption is through my blood. It's through my blood that's been poured out. So now you have the biblical justification as we approach Passover using Lent. What I want to do is, I want to extract all of this from our church tradition and put it back in its biblical context, which means that we are preparing ourselves today, starting today, to eat the Passover. We're preparing ourselves to take in the lamb, digest it in our hearts, in our lives, in our families. And God willing, it will spill out into our neighborhoods and into our city. And if you remember, Passover is not just a set of propositions that we reflect upon and we remember. It's an actual feast. It's It's a meal that we are to eat. So we are preparing for this actual meal, which is why for the next several weeks, we're not going to have communion. We're not. Because we're going to wait. We're going to wait until 40 days from now when we take communion. Eat the meal. Now in Luke 22, the text that we read four times, it says prepare, prepare, prepare. And I like this too, because this text, you also have uh, both the day of unleavened bread and you also have Passover uh, both together. And I want to explain right now how God lays this out. Every month or every spring, in their month of April, on the 14th day, God instructed them to celebrate Passover. Passover is a one-day feast. The next day would begin the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The Feast of Unleavened Bread is a seven-day feast that always begins on the day after Passover, on the 15th of their month of April. 
Now there's also a third feast that's also tucked into uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Does anybody know what feast that is? See, we need to know this stuff. We do. It's the Feast of First Fruits. The Feast of First Fruits is, is, is the day where God says, I want on the first day of the week of the Feast of Unleavened Bread to be a day when you take the first of your harvest, bring it into the temple, and wave it before me as a praise offering. So the, the New Testament then refers to this whole cluster of spring feasts as sometimes Passover, sometimes as the Feast of Unleavened Bread, but here we have both. Now something else I want us to see. Um, go with me here, okay? Today is what day of the week? Sunday, right? Now, when did Sunday begin for us? 12 o'clock, right? Midnight? Not for a Jew. When did Sunday begin for a Jew? At sundown last night. And when does Monday begin? Sundown tonight. Because they look at Genesis 1 and they say, and it was the first day, and God made evening first and morning second. So they take that literally. Now I say all this to say, because Christ, on what we would call Thursday night, is the night where he celebrates the Passover meal with his disciples, and then it feels like it's the next day, which we call Good Friday, in which he is uh, crucified, And of course, they have to get him off the cross. Why? Well, because in their minds, this was all one day, beginning Thursday evening. And I make this point to say, Jesus died on Passover. Is that coincidence? Or is it coincidence then that the next day, Uh, which is the start of the Feast of of Unleavened Bread, when every Jew in the world at that time is praying, God, would you you bless us with life from the earth? And as they're praying that God would bless us with life from the earth, they are putting the Lord of the universe into the earth. And then the next day after that, which is the first day of the week, which is Sunday, which is the Feast of Firstfruits, when they're taking the first of their harvest and bringing it into the temple and waving it before God as as the first fruits of a great harvest that is yet to come, Jesus is the first fruits of resurrection, of an even greater life, resurrection life from the earth. And you tell me that all of this is coincidence. Now, in Luke 22, over and over again, it says, now, to prepare for, for this feast, Jesus says, prepare, prepare, prepare. And preparations for Passover were an important part of this feast. In Exodus 12, God says, I want you to get all the leaven out of your home. All of it. So what already developed by the time of Jesus, weeks leading up to Passover, was this massive spring cleaning where every crumb of leaven was removed from their homes as a way to prepare for the feast. And this was not just a mom deal. Hey, mom, get the house clean. This was a whole family deal. 
dad, brothers, sisters, scouring their homes, looking under every cushion, under every floorboard for leaven. In fact, I think I told you this. When we lived in Jerusalem, I I just couldn't believe it. One day I woke up, and it was on this day in their calendar. And there were all these uh, big dumpsters with fires, even outside of five-star hotels. And I looked in there, and sure enough, all their bread was put in there. It was burning. They were getting the leaven out. Why leaven? Or yeast, as we call it. Well, what is yeast? Yeast is the thing that makes bread, bread. It's what causes bread to rise. What causes bread to be tasty and delicious. And if you know anything about yeast, all it takes is just the smallest pinch. And you put just a small pinch and a huge lump of dough, and it spreads rapidly. Organically, unseen, but it's potent because that little pinch of yeast will change the whole nature of the bread. And see, this is why the Bible uses leaven or yeast as a metaphor or a picture of sin, namely the sin that is under all sin, pride and selfishness. You put just a little pinch of that into the human heart. And it will spread like gangrene. And see, what God is doing is he's taking this metaphor to say is every year as you prepare to eat the lamb, my Passover, I want you to get serious about leaven. I want you to find it. I want you to find every last crumb of it. I want you to scour your house. I want you to scour your whole life. I want you to shine the light in all the dark and and hidden closets. I want you to turn over every piece of furniture. I want you to remove every crumb so that you and your family are prepared to eat the lamb. And then I want for a whole week after you eat the lamb to be Leaven free. No leaven. Now, if you want to know what this looks like in the Bible, um, there are two times that I, oh, it's just awesome. King Josiah brings back massive revival to Israel, and he does it by instituting the Passover. And when he institutes uh, the Passover, listen to what the text says in 2 Kings 23. It says, The king commanded all the people, keep the Passover. The Lord your God is prescribed in the book of his covenant. He, he says, and then it says this. It says, No such Passover had ever been kept since the days of the judges or following all the days of the kings of Israel. He ex- they experienced the Passover over of all Passovers. Why? Well, because of what the next verse says. Joshua put away the mediums, wizards, teraphim, idols, all the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem so that he established the words of Torah. What he did and what the people of Israel did into preparing for Passover, they got the leaven out, all of it. Hezekiah did the same thing. In fact, in 2 Chronicles 30, as, as, as Hezekiah too is instituting Passover again, 
um, it says that as they prepared for Passover, they smashed all the idols that existed in Jerusalem, dumped them in the Kidron Valley, and they didn't stop until the entire land was rid of every idol. And I'm telling you, getting the, the leaven out then resulted in a national revival. And I think Paul picks up on this same thing in 1 Corinthians 5. He says this to the church in Corinth. He says, you know what, Corinthians, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? There's the concept. Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as you really are. Why? For Christ is our Passover lamb, and he has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the feast, but not with the old leaven, of bread with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Paul says, keep the feast. That's not a suggestion, that's a command. And keeping the feast, Paul says, get the leaven out. And you know what leaven he's specifically talking about there? Read 1 Corinthians 5 verse 1. He says, there's sexual immorality going on in this batch of of dough that even the pagans would be embarrassed of. Keep the feast and get that junk out of this batch of dough. And this is just my opinion, but I believe that Christ followers today, starting with me and my family, we've allowed way too much leaven in our lives. Almost to the point where we're not that much different than the world around us. Now the Catholic Church, when they replaced Passover with Good Friday and Easter, what they did is they called the church to fast as a way to prepare for this holiday. And this is their way of saying, I think, hey, as we prepare for Good Friday and Easter, let's get the leaven out of our lives. And then it wasn't long before this fast evolved into 40 days, 40 days of fasting. And these 40 days of fasting are not just human tradition, but I think they're rooted in the text of The way you prepare for this feast is you get the leaven out of your lives. Now, if we're going to keep Lent, there's some things I want to say about fasting right now because when I read the Bible, first of all, fasting is not something the Bible screams. It's, It's more something the Bible whispers. And to quote Neil, we need to be careful to not scream what the Bible whispers and, and to whisper what the Bible screams. And right now I miss that guy. Anybody else miss him? <laughs> but see, it was around this time uh, that I talked about historically that fasting became really the hallmark of Catholic spirituality. And the way it was done and the reasons it was done really had little to do with God's word and it had much more to do I think, with a Gnostic, Platonic view of the world. You're like, what's that? Well, it's Plato. 
And basically, Plato taught that the world consisted of two parts. There's a material world and a spiritual world. And we continue to do the same thing, to break the world into the spiritual and the material. Plato taught that the material world was created by a bad god or a demon, that the spiritual world was created by a good god. And this dualism then, where the material world was then seen as bad and evil, and in this dualism, the spiritual world was seen as good and eternal. And then the way that this was applied to a person is that the real you, the good you, is your soul. And that your good you is trapped, or better yet, entombed in your bad you, which is your material body. And Plato taught that because your body is the enemy of your soul, or the prison to your soul, salvation then is your soul escaping this bad evil body and this bad material world for a disembodied place called heaven. And so Gnostics love to fast. Because they see both food and the body as bad. And in fasting, I can starve the bad part of myself. Now, the sad thing right now is that some of you are thinking, wait a second, I thought that was biblical. But as many of my professors said in college, everything we learn in the West is really a footnote to Plato. Because Plato's conception of the world and conception of of human beings really won the day in the West. But this is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that God didn't just create the spiritual world, but that God made the whole world. And that all that God made is good. And he made it all for our joy. And the Bible teaches that's what's most wrong with you, what's most wrong with me, it's not our body, it's our heart. And that the sin that exists under all sin, pride and selfishness. That's a deal of the heart, isn't it? And salvation, then, according to the Bible, is not a flight from this bad, awful world, nor is it an escape from this bad, awful, evil body. But salvation is the redemption of my whole self, which includes my body, and God redeeming all creation. But see, as this spirituality overtook the church, even passages of Scripture were doctored up a little bit. For instance, the one that comes to mind right now is when Jesus comes down the mountain of transfiguration and he sees his disciples trying to cast out a demon and they can't do it. And Jesus kind of frustratedly just says to them, what's wrong with you guys? Oh, you have little faith. This only comes out through what? Prayer and fasting. But if you look, there's probably a footnote in your Bible which says, and fasting is a later addition. I'm not here this morning to say that fasting is bad because to deny ourselves is a very big part of what it means to be a follower of Christ. In fact, it might be the very thing that God is going to call you to do in the next 40 days. And it might be the way in which you're going to get the leaven out of your life. But if we're going to do it, either hardcore or put our toes into it, we need to know what God says about fasting. And I think here are some biblical facts. First of all, in the Old Testament, we know Moses and Elijah fasted for 40 days. 
we also know that Jesus did that in the New Testament. And I would say at face value, that might be good enough reason for you to fast. But also factor in this. What did people accuse Jesus of not doing enough of? Why are you guys not fasting? And what was Jesus' response? He said, wait a second. Who fasts at a wedding reception? He says, the bridegroom is here. And he essentially taught the kingdom of heaven. It's not a fast. But as we heard already this morning, it's a feast. It's a party. There's one time a year when God instructed a fast. Does anybody know what day of the year it was? On Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. God said, on this day in which I am going to atone for your sins, I want you to fast. How many days did God command them to feast? Seventy. Even Sabbath is a feast. And again, we need to be careful that we do not scream what the Bible whispers. Or to make a peripheral thing the main thing. Because we can then change the whole flavor of the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus showed us what the flavor of the kingdom of heaven. It's not one of fasting as much as it is one of eating and drinking and feasting. And I don't want our Gnostic spirituality to destroy this. To make the kingdom of heaven into a dirge when the kingdom of heaven is a party. I don't want us to think that fasting, if you choose to do this, will make you more spiritual. Do you know the group of people that fasted the most in Jesus' day and it's not even close? Take a guess. The Pharisees, they fasted three days a week. And why the Pharisees? And why are they fasting? Because the Pharisees always had something to prove to to God and to others about how righteous they, they were. Listen to Paul in Colossians 2. He says, you've died with Christ. Therefore, you've been set free from the elementary principles of this world. So why do you keep on following the rules of this world, such as don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. He says, such rules are mere human teachings about things that deteriorate as we use them. He says, these rules may seem wise because they require such strong devotion, pious self-denial, and severe bodily discipline, but they provide no help in conquering a person's evil desires. People who fast because they think it will make God like them more, I think are actually working against one of the greatest truths of the Bible. And if you haven't heard anything I've said right now, listen to this truth of the gospel. You can't do anything to get the God of the universe to like you more. And you can't do anything to get the God of the universe to love you less. He loves you because he loves you because of how good he is and not how good you're striving to be. 
And if you think fasting, too, is, is something to be done in the next 40 days so you can get God to act or you can manipulate him to do something that you want him to do. I don't know. Maybe it's just because of the earthly father I have. It's, maybe it's all his fault. But I had a dad that believed in me. And if I want something, I just ask him. Hey, dad, I need this. Hey, dad, can you help me with this? And I project that then on God because he's an even greater father than my own father. And he says, if you want something, just ask. And if you're seeking something, seek it. Here's a reason to fast. Fasting in the Bible is almost always done as an expression of repentance. It's not done to say, hey, look at me and see how spiritual I am. It's done to expose my depravity. That's why oftentimes in the body, it's a, in the Bible, it's accompanied with the wearing of sackcloth and ashes and being covered with dirt. I was reading a woman's memoirs this week about her Lent experience of 40 days of fasting. I like this. She said, I forsake and I fast. And I forget and I flounder. I fail. I fail. I made soup today. I lit the candle. Our family bows. I have bread in the mouth, the bowl half empty. When I drop the spoon, I shake the head hard. I taste disgust. I absentmindedly just ate the evening meal I vowed to fast from. What was I thinking? I can't scrub my lips clean. I choke it out in a whisper. At the end of the day, when I choose not to stay apart, a day when I wandered and failed to focus on Christ alone, I close the eyes tight and the heart cries the word silent. Do I love you, Jesus, so little? She says, it is an irrefutable law that one needs to be dispossessed of the possessions that possess before one can be possessed of God. So she says, let the things of this world fall away so the soul can fall in love with God. She says, when my brother calls late in the week to talk Lynn, I'm honest and it hurts and he listens and he unwraps his week haltingly. Like brother, like sister, we both fail, but Lent is teaching me. My throat stings. I see how depraved I am, how incapable I am in my own self, how in bondage I am, that I can't keep any law perfect. Worse, all of this cuts so deep at times. She says, I can hardly say this. At times, I don't even want to keep God's commands. Lent's revealing my depravity my impotence, that I can do nothing. That's a great reason to enter a season of fasting. What I'm calling our church today as we approach Passover is what our brother just ended his talk with. God's word over and over again says that we cannot serve two masters. We will either be devoted to one 
or we will be devoted to other. We cannot be devoted to both. James said, too much liking the world actually means enmity with God. First John says we cannot love both the world and, and, and love God. And I don't think we always understand just this either-or nature of following Christ. Shema. To love God with everything we have demands repentance. It demands an honest look at our life, an honest look at our loves, how we spend our time, how we spend our money, what we're devoted to, what is it that makes us happy. And as we take an honest look, not just at our lives, but even at our homes, our hearts, we're going to see things that we need to ruthlessly uproot, tear out clean house because Passover's coming and there's a meal to be eaten and this to me is the biblical meaning of Lent and yes Lent is an individual thing for me it starts with with me taking a look at my own life but Getting the leaven out is a family thing. So if you are a parent today, (laughs) you need to get not just the leaven out of your heart and out of your life, but you need to get the leaven out of your house and you need to make this a family thing. And so I'm encouraging families to do this as a family, that families would choose a day where they would come together so they could identify the leaven in their their respective homes, the leaven that's represented in their family, family's lives, and that as a family, they would remove it. One guy this week told me they're getting rid of all the screens for these next 40 days, all screens. I'm like, whoa, I don't, whoa, could I do that? If you're a house church leader, maybe you do this as a house church. If you're in a friendship cluster, maybe your friendship cluster does this as, as, as a whole group. What is it that we, we've identified, the leaven that exists in our lives, in, in our dorm, at our workplace, that we need to ruthlessly uproot and remove and get rid of so we can prepare our hearts for the Passover meal. That's the call. That's the challenge. You can take the baton from here. Let's pray. God, our hearts just long for spring. And it's so much deeper than warm weather and green grass and leaves on the trees. God, we look at our hearts and our lives. We look at our families. We look at our community, our neighborhoods, our cities, our nation, our world. And we see so much winter. 
But the promise of the gospel is that spring has come and spring is coming. And let your people not be so flippant about that awesome reality, but let your word and that reality fall on our hearts, creating a sense of anticipation. And as we prepare, God, I pray that we would seriously take to heart what we need to do to prepare to eat the meal, the resurrection meal that you have provided. Let your truth fall on us today and let there be response in Jesus' name.